0: You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned off to it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Excited to be with you all today. Welcome to Mosaic. My name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here and the holidays are upon us, are they not? So, Merry Christmas to you. Anybody here got a got a special someone just in time for the holidays? This is the thing, you know this, right? Like studies show, like couples get together just for the holidays. But if this is you, you should also know like <laughs> New Year's is coming and the post-Christmas decoupling is a thing as well, Studies show. So anyway, but hey, but let's just say this is you and you've, you've got, a, you got a new boo in your life uh, or you just married or you got a relationship of, uh, of some sort. Let's say I ask you, hey, what's your boyfriend like? What's your girlfriend like? What's your husband or wife like? Now, to answer that question, I would need to meet who? Well, not just him, but his family. Hmm? Not just her, but her family. Uh, Her mom, his dad, their aunties, uncles, tios, tias, all that. I would need to get the backstory... To see who that person really is. And so today, I think if we, if you want to understand Christmas, something that billions, literally, of people around the world celebrate to really get Christmas, you have to understand not only who Jesus of Nazareth is, as the person at the center of Christmas, but also what his backstory was and is like. And so that's really our goal. That's my heart this month. We're looking at the the backstory of the birth of Jesus. The backstory... Of Christmas, by focusing on some specific people's voices and choices who are connected to Jesus Christ, because, because long before there were ever any wise men who came with gifts. There were also some wise women who offer their lives. So this month we're looking at some of the stories of those aunties and tias and sisters and mothers so to speak, of Jesus Christ. And today we begin, of course, our journey towards that. And let's kick off and begin the story of our first wise woman like this. A few years ago, my wife, Carrie, and I thought, we asked this question, you know what we need? Some of you are all like, I know what you need. <laughs> <Did I know? laughs> now, you know what we need? Uh, we need? We thought we need a security system for for our house. Now, I promise I'm going somewhere with this, so hang on with me. Uh, I need a security system because I was traveling a lot at the time for my my work. I was gone a lot, so we decided to get one. And though what you're about to hear may discourage you from getting a security system, that's not my aim today. If you want one, get one. They're great, okay? But we said yes, and we signed up for this plan. with like this really well-known security system company. If I've said it, you probably know their name. And when we did, though the terms didn't look that great, because it was like a five-year contract, we went ahead and said, okay. And we got it, and we paid the bill every month, and then we moved here to Texas to Austin to pastor at Mosaic. And when we got here, we found that it was going to cost quite a lot of money to put the new equipment into our new house at the time. Because in the past, the company had funded the equipment for the old house... For the new house, they wouldn't, okay? But we kept paying the bill every month, even though we had literally no system, because we had to, you know, to get out of the contract would have cost us a whole bunch of money. So we kept paying, and we kept paying every month for five years on this non-existent system until the contract was up. And when we got to the end of it, after we paid off the whole thing, we were so glad, of course, to be done with that, except the next month. We got auto-drafted again from the company. And so we called and we said, what's the deal? And they said, oh, if you don't tell us that you want to cancel, you are automatically renewed for another year. You sign this in your contract. And we protested and we, we said, no way. But they said, yeah, way. And we couldn't get out of it. But we said, okay, fine. Consider this our notice. We want out. And another year came, another year went, and we paid the bill every month, and finally again, we thought we were through because we had given our notice. But still, after a year was up, we got auto-drafted again and kept paying. So we called, and they said, oh, you can't just give your notice any old time you want to you have to call within 30 days of your last month. And because that window is gone, it's going to be another year. You sign the contract and if you cancel before the year is up, you'll be penalized and owe us a whole bunch of money. And we said, no way. Like, no one told us this last year, back when we gave our notice that we didn't even know we had to give because we'd already fulfilled our contract. And we said, literally, we haven't even been using your system for years. Like, all we've been doing is literally paying you to take our money. So, will you please let us out? But they said, no. But in another year, if you'll call within 30 days of your cancellation date, let us know and we'll let you cancel. I'm like, Who's letting who do what around here? But anyway, and so after another year of paying non-existent bills for a, non, for a non-existent system, I called in that 30-day window, and they said, "I'm sorry, sir, but this call is not enough." They said, "You're also going to have to fax in a request of this number in the next 30 days, so we'll have a record of it." so because apparently it's 1994 uh, in this company's world, I found the last fax machine in Austin and faxed it in. But the next month, the bills kept coming, auto-drafted again. So I called and said, did you get the fax? They said, no, we have no record of your fax, sir. I said, but I called and you said the fax and I did. They said, we don't have any record of any conversation with you about this. But they said, if you'll send the fax into another number we'll cancel your service. So again, found that last fax machine, that was still around, and I sent another fax, and I called this time and confirmed the receipt of the fax. The next month, the bill kept coming again. So I called again, I said, what is the deal? And this time, they said, yes, yes, we got the fax, but you didn't call us about the fax from the primary account holder's (laughs) telephone number. So I got Carrie to call and they said, are you the primary account holder? She said, yes I am. They said, did you send the fax? Carrie said, no, my husband did. They said, well because the primary account holder didn't call and send the fax in the 30 day window, you are now obligated for another year. Now at this point, <laughs> I seriously considered losing my salvation over this <laughs> and exiting vocational ministry to retain a shred of dignity. Right. this point of course we had had enough we had tried and tried and tried nothing's working right the goalposts keep moving what were we caught in there's a word for this caught in a trap a trap right a trap elvis put it like you know about right like caught in a trap and i can't get out we were caught in a trap of a really bad system now have you ever felt like this felt like this felt like that, not just with a utilities company because, of course, as frustrating as that was, and thankfully we did get out of it after months of being shuffled around on the phone, as frustrating as that trap was, hear me, there are way worse ways, many other way worse ways of being trapped in life, ways of being trapped that don't just frustrate you, ways of being trapped that can break you. And today we're going to meet someone in Jesus' backstory who was trapped in just about every way a person could be trapped and whose heart and life were breaking under the weight of it all until she did something very wise that set her very free. And her name was Hannah, Hannah, and Hannah's story is from the scroll of Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, and Hannah's story, roughly 1000 BC, goes like this. There's a certain man from Ramaphim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Now Hannah's one of two wives. Don't get thrown by that. We'll talk about it in a second. But one of two wives of Mr. Elkanah here. And when we meet Hannah, we find that her life is falling apart. Why? Well, as we're about to find out and read, Hannah is trapped in at least three unique ways. First, she's caught what I'll call a, a family trap, a dysfunctional family trap, because like a lot of families in the ancient Near East, her family was marked by the practice, as we read, of polygamy, the practice of having multiple wives of the same husband. And by the way, as always, when the Bible shows you these stories, it's not showing you this to endorse this. It actually only shows you the pain, the frustration, the angers. It's basically a, a don't do this episode of the Bible, okay? So you yeah, ask, well, why did people, why did women enter into this? Well, on one hand, there were a few reasons. There were some protections afforded women in that day in this system, right? Uh, protections afforded women in a day where law enforcement's minimal, hmm? Individual rights are minimal, life expectancy, mortality rates low. Uh, but on the whole, this system caused way more problems than it ever solved. And so like all, like all flawed relational and cultural systems, polygamy made everybody in the system worse. Look what it did to Elkanah. Verse 3, year after year, this man... went from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. So Elkanah, he means well, he's doing his best, but the point is he's trying to balance unbalanceable scales. He's trying to win an unwinnable contest. One wife gave him children. The other wife gave him none. So now he doubly favors the one with none. This in turn now makes Penina worse. Because it says, verse six, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Have you ever had someone in your life like this provokes you, provokes you, provokes you, won't let it go, and makes it worse like a security system. <laughs> year after year. I mean, this is what's happening to Hannah. So what's Panina doing to her? Well, put it like this. is not body shaming, you've heard that term. She's baby shaming. Baby shaming. Why? This brings up the second trap Hannah is caught in. She's caught in now a cultural trap. Cultural trap, here's what I mean. In that culture, barrenness, the inability to have children, was a social death sentence. To to be barren in an ancient traditional culture meant your family's prospects for survival were now dimmed. Your income, your social status, your future personal security were all determined by how many children that you had. Therefore, having children was literally a life or death issue, so much so that the pressure on women to bear children was unbearable, no pun intended. I mean, think here, think of a, for example, uh, another Bible character uh, somewhat before this, uh, someone back in the book of Genesis, her name was Rachel, and Rachel pleads with her husband, Jacob, back in Genesis verse thir- uh, chapter 30, verse one. She says this, listen to her words. She said, give me children or I die. Now, can you hear the pain yeah. in her voice, right? The pain in her heart. Walter Brueggemann, ancient Bible commentator, says this. says, Barrenness in any ancient text or narrative is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your children, or for your people. And barrenness meant there was no human power to invent a future at all. Now look what this is now doing to Hannah. It says her rival kept provoking her in order to what? To irritate her. Again, this word verse six is translated as irritate, but that's not quite strong enough because the word actually means to thunder or roar as in a storm. As a matter of fact, every other time in the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, except for one that it's used, it always refers to a raging storm or a thundering sea or a storm raging on the sea. In other words, Hannah, she's not just irritated or bugged. She's raging. She's swirling, she's drowning in a sea of emotion that goes to the point where now this happens. It says, now whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. This is saying, here's the point of this, This saying that Hannah is beginning to walk away from God. See, her refusal to eat the temple food, this is a way of keeping God at arm's length. She's refusing to worship. She's refusing God's word. She's refusing her community of faith, giving up on it all. Why? It's because the combination The complexity of these first two traps, family trap, cultural trap, have pushed her into the third trap, a kind of personal trap as well, personal trap. Because now she believes what her critic says and what her culture has said. She's taken all this in and allowed herself to believe something about herself that she is personally worthless and permanently hopeless. She's caught in a trap. She can't get out she's drowning and by the way by the way you will feel like this i'll feel like this hear me at any point at which you or i are unable unable to achieve what our culture defines for us as salvation Okay, ancient Israel had a collectivist culture whereby you know, all your meaning came from your family, uh, all your hope was in your family, how you got ahead was through your family. Today in the U.S., this is mostly reversed. We live almost exclusively in an individualistic culture, as in we don't really rely on our families to give us meaning, a name in our culture. We rely on our own selves, our own attributes, our own qualities to get ahead. And let me give you one example of this, I think. What is it that our culture in many ways has defined as the way of salvation for women in particular? It's not having babies as much as it is having beauty, having beauty, looking a certain way, Hmm? having a certain skin color, certain skin tone, being a certain size, being a certain age. These are beautiful. This is not so much so that Many of you, especially women today, you go to the grocery store, you can see that magazine aisle, hmm? look at celebrities, you get on the gram, and you wonder, like, man, did she have some work done, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you feel, you can feel like a, like a 21st century Rachel, give me beauty or I die. Yeah. I've had friends over the years, uh, they've struggled with a variety of eating disorders, maybe this is you today. And some of the ones who have struggled with this are actually the loveliest women and people you could ever meet. And some of them, even as athletes in college, I know this, they're naturally thin, they're in shape, they're working out all the time, uh, they, they, but they eat nothing, literally nothing all day. Some them, like I had a popcorn dinner or a baked potato only for dinner, and they wake up in the middle of the night to do push-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks and go back to bed on top of all the pressure from their coaches to lose more and more and more weight. And many of these women, thankfully, got free through the grace of God, the grace of God, and through what you're going to see Hannah do here in a minute, but let's just ask this first. Here's my point. How many women with eating disorders do you read about in the Bible? None, right? None. Why? Because the pressure on women wasn't to look good. The pressure was on them to breed good. Yeah. Yeah. Now you say, God, that is really oppressive. (laughs) I'm like, I agree, but is our culture really that different today? Women then wanted to die because they couldn't have children. to meet the standard of uh, of, of, of salvation that culture created. Women today may want to die. Some are because they aren't meeting a standard of beauty. Our culture was created. The point is there's no such thing as a non-oppressive culture. We're not freer today, but I want to tell you the whole point of the story and the whole point of the, the Bible is that this God, the one true God, is a God of freedom. and He is able to deliver the human heart out of the power of oppression and from the trap Any family, any culture. So where are we in the story? Let's see how our three sad characters are doing. So far, Elkanah, he's losing both his wives. Penina, she's lost her dignity. And Hannah, she's lost her hope. And yet, one of them, in this little, if uh, you're from a counseling background, you know, this is a little Cartman drama triangle, dysfunctional emotional triangle, she's found the way out. Hannah found the way out. She broke free from her storm. She escaped the traps. How? Let's see how she did it then and how we can today. Verse nine. It says, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. <laughs> you think... That's all. Like, big deal, she stood up. Was it like she needed a stretch or something? No, no, no. This means something else. More literally, it reads maybe you saw this in your translation. It says, Hannah arose. Arose. And in the Hebrew scriptures, for for a person to arise, it means they're taking decisive, dramatic action. You see it all the way through through the Old Testament. Abraham arose. Moses arose. Joshua arose. Hannah here arises. See, to arise means to move up through the fog of indecision or hopelessness into a place of action, choice, purpose, deliberation. Hannah arose, this is saying, and here's where she goes. She didn't go to her culture, she didn't go to a man but she goes to God, God. Instead of running from God, now she runs to him and she prays something amazing here. And this is where she begins to find her way out. Look at verse 10. I love this verse. It says, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Matter of fact, why don't we just read this verse together? It's so powerful. Would you read this with me? Say this. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. See, on one hand, traditional Christian culture tells us to to stuff it down. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about it. Modern secular culture, on the other hand, says, hey, don't just really like, don't pray about it, just post about it. Right, Tell everybody all your stuff But that's not what Hannah does here She does neither Though previously she had tried both On the one hand she tried stuffing it down Staying away from God On the other hand she weeps so publicly That her husband's got to intervene Oh but here and now Oh in verse 11 and 10 She does something different She goes to God And she gets real with him Look at verse 11 And she now made a vow Saying oh Lord almighty if you'll only look upon your servant's misery and remember me. Now listen, listen this is crucial because look at what the, the name for God that she uses is here. She uses the term Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty. In the Hebrew, it's the term Yahweh Sabbath. This is the Hebrew name for God that emphasizes his utter transcendence, his infinite, absolute power. Why? What's she doing? Here's what she's doing. She is hooking her heart onto one of the attributes of God, And letting that lift her up out of every trap. Because here's what she's saying saying, God, Lord of hosts, you are so majestic, uh, so powerful, and I am utterly subject to your will. Oh, but look on me. Remember, me. See, she's presupposing here that her little life and her little problems, so to speak, matter to the God of the universe. This is the same God we see in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who comes up to, you know, just bad planning teenagers at a wedding in Cana who forget to order enough wine to drink and he fixes their problem fixes the party. Why? Because he cares about your problems. He cares about your needs, and Hannah's doing the same thing here. She's seeing the same thing, saying, God, you are holy, you are powerful, and you got the right to ask me to live however you want to, because you're God and I'm not, but my life matters to you. So I'm going to ask big, (laughs) believe big, I'm going to ask you to release me now from all the ways I've become trapped. And when Hannah grasps here that God is both big and personal, made the universe, but he loves her and her situation, in her family, in her dynamic. Now something shifts in her heart, verse 11. She says, then, if I have this son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. <laughs> what does this mean? Well, at first you may think, this is like a, the typical empty promise some of us have made like, God, if you'll help me get the new car, I 'll come back to church, you know God, if you 'll give me that raise, i 'll show up in community group. No, you know, and this by the way, just showing up that's not what God really wants for our lives. Right? But listen, this is no empty promise because that, that last phrase there, the no razor part, that 's a reference to an obscure Jewish vow called a Nazarite vow, in which a child who's not the son of a priest would be dedicated exclusively for God. They would never drink alcohol, and they would never get their hair cut the point is a Nazarite would stand out wherever he went everyone would see the Nazarite and know the one for whom he existed see what hannah is doing is telling god and showing us god this child isn't for me this child is for you it's for you and when hannah does that i want to tell you the thing she wanted didn't own her anymore anymore I want to tell you the same thing is true. Until you and I, until you can say to that cultural trap you may be caught in today, that dysfunctional cultural trap like Hannity, until you can say, I don't exist for you, culture, and your standard. Oh, I exist for God first. Until you can say that, you'll be trapped. Until you can say to some dysfunctional relational trap like Hannity, oh, I don't exist for you. Take notes, Panina, right? I exist for God You'll be trapped until you can say even to your own heart, your own heart's desire, heart, heart's desire, you don't exist for you. You exist for God first until you can say that. You'll always be trapped. Why? Here's why. It's because, and I wish you were different, because you can't always change the culture and the systems around you. I wish we could. I wish I could. I wish you could. See, it's a mystery to me why Jesus didn't like just burn Rome down, <laughs> kick out all the oppressors overnight, right? Come up, take up residence in Caesar's palace and create a perfect world. But he didn't do it because God doesn't promise to always change the world around us right now, but he does promise to change us, he to change us. And when Hannah does this, she's saying, listen, my culture doesn't define me first. Men don't define me first. My critics don't define me. God, I belong to you first. And anything you give me is really for you. Yeah. See, Hannah, Hannah, by giving up her life, gets her life back. And in this way, she's extraordinarily wise. Here's what's amazing. I love this. Now she's at peace. She's at peace not after she gets pregnant, not after she gets the new things she's asking for. Oh, no, but she's at peace before she ever gets the fruit of her promise. Because when she prays here, when this is happening, she's at this Jewish place of worship. She encounters the priest there named Eli who at first thinks she's drunk when she's praying, which is really weird. I think it says more about like the state of the worship in their day. But it's also the opportunity for her to fall into another trap hmm? the trap of being misunderstood by an authority figure but she had every right to be but she shakes it off she pours out her soul to god and then eli the priest he gets it and he says this he answered i said oh go in peace and may the god of israel grant your petition you asked of him so the woman hannah went her way and ate see she's coming back to her faith face was no longer sad then they arose early in the morning Worship before the Lord and returning into their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with his wife, Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. She pours out her soul. Then she gets peace. Then she has her child. And now how? I love this. Chapter two, Hannah prays again. Really, she sings a song here. And now in Hannah's song, now we see how her story connects to Christ's and to Christmas. Hannah sings about two things. We'll look at briefly. First, she sings about a pattern. A pattern. She says, look, my heart, oh, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Those who were hungry... Cease to hunger. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises who? The poor from the dust. He lifts who? The needy from the ash heap. I love this because this is saying God's salvation has a pattern to it. Who does this God save? Not the powerful. No, but those who know that they are weak and in need of saving, cast down the proud. But he lifts up who? The barren woman. This is how God saves. God Hears the cry of the weak. And by the way, that's exactly what Hannah named her son Samuel, which means God has heard. My God has heard me. God hears. Then Samuel grew up to be the last and greatest judge of Israel. And one day he too appointed a weak little shepherd boy out in the field named David to be the king of Israel. So Hannah first sings a pattern, but she doesn't just sing a pattern here. Finally, she's singing about a person. Look at the last two lines from her song. She concludes it like this. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, that means the power, of his anointed. You may say, oh, I get it. Oh, the person she's singing about is like David, right? The coming king. Well, I would say yes and no. I think Hannah here is going way beyond David because she doesn't just use the word king. No, the last verse, the last verse she sings is the word anointed, it's the word Messiah in the Hebrew, the word Christ in the Greek, in other words, as much as she is singing about David in a way, oh, she's singing about a greater David, a coming Messiah, and you can know this is true and is fulfilled because of another famous song, sung by another famous Bible woman who has an even greater son years later, and this woman's name was Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus oh, years later, sings, whose song? Hannah's song. When she conceives, look at Luke 1. We read it to begin our time today. She sings, my soul exalts the Lord. This is sounding quite familiar. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for the mighty one has done great things. For who? Me. And holy is his name. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's exalted those who were humble. We hear you, Hannah, here. He's filled the hungry with good things. Sent the rich away empty handed and given help to Israel, his servant. Mary's singing the same pattern. Why? Because she's singing about. The ultimate person. Because Mary was, after all, come on, the ultimate barren woman. She was a virgin, not even married, unable to have a child totally, and yet brought forth the ultimate righteous judge, God's anointed one, Jesus. But this anointed one, oh, he was different than all the other children born to barren women. Uh, Samuel, Isaac, Samson, they were all Old Testament characters born to barren women. They saved their family or their nation through some kind of economic power, political power. Oh, but Jesus was different. He saves his people, how? By losing his power, giving it away so that you and I could be lifted up and out from every way our culture and our hearts impress us. So that when we look to him and we say, oh Jesus, I exist for you. (laughs) You are my indestructible hope. Now our hearts hooked onto that hot air balloon of the goodness of God. It pulls us up and out. And we can be free. See, when Jesus poured out his soul on the cross, he wasn't heard. So then when we Hannah's pour out our hearts before God, we know we can be heard. And in silence and agony, you know this, Jesus died for you. Why? Because he loves you. And he was raised to life to provide you and I with a way out. He is that pattern. He is that person. And you can have both today. I want to tell you, you want to sing the song Hannah? Hannah? You have to have the ultimate hope of Hannah, God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.